From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Last week, New Zealand's High Court sentenced Brenton Tarrant to life without parole, the first time the sentence has ever been handed down in the country. But even though he's behind bars, his atrocities continue to inspire far-right extremists around the world. Today, Osman Faruqi on the increased threat of violent white nationalism and what happens after Christchurch. Oz, last week there was an extraordinary four-day sentencing hearing for Brenton Tarrant, the terrorist behind the Christchurch attacks. What happened over those four days? Brenton Tarrant was flown from the prison that he normally resides in, in in Auckland, to Christchurch for that sentencing hearing on a military aircraft. And he was heavily guarded by security and police throughout the entire week, including when he was in court. Osman Faruqi wrote about the sentencing of Brenton Tarrant for the Saturday paper. He was separated by everyone else from a glass panel over the course of the four days. And, and over that period, 90 survivors of the attack and their family members delivered witness impact statements describing the impact that the attack and Tarrant's violence had on their lives. My name is Wasim Sati Daragmi. My name is Mazaruddin Sayyid Ahmed. My name is Ibrahim Abdul Halim. My name is Sarah Carson. Because there are so many survivors and witnesses, there was a really wide range of testimony given over those days. Janar Azat, whose 35-year-old son Hussein Al-Umari was killed at the Al Noor Mosque, said that she forgave Tarrant. I decided to forgive you, Mr. Tarrant, because I don't have hate. I don't have revenge. And in our Muslim faith, we say al-afu and al-maqdira. It means that if we are able to forgive, forgive. There was also a lot of testimony given that was angry and, and a lot of survivors who channeled their grief and rage in what they said in, in the courtroom. He is a loner, a big fat loser, a coward and a pathetic human being. Allah is gone, but never forgotten. Let it be known, these tears are not for you. One witness in, in particular whose testimony went viral, really, all around the world was Ahad Nabi. His father, Haji Mohammed Daud Nabi, fled Afghanistan during the war with Russia in 1979 and settled in New Zealand. Haji Mohammed was shot dead at the Al-Nur Mosque. And so Ahad, on his behalf, was giving testimony to the court. He entered court and he was dressed in the jersey of the New Zealand Warriors, the NRL team, for the country. And he was wearing a pakol, which is a traditional Afghan hat. You are weak. A sheep with a wolf's jacket on for only 10 minutes of your whole life. He looked Tarrant in the eyes, pointed at him. At, at certain moments, he stuck up his middle fingers at Tarrant and his voice, which started out shaking, then became firmer. I would like to say that my 71-year-old dad would have broke you in half if you challenged him to a fight. He described Tarrant's father as a garbage man 
and described Taran himself as trash of society and said that he deserved to be buried in landfill. I'm strong. And you made me even stronger. A low During uh, this four days, this sentencing hearing, what did we learn about Tarrant's activities leading up to the massacre? So as well as a survivor testimony last week, uh, we heard new details about how meticulously planned the attack was. Tarrant had spent the two years since he moved to New Zealand amassing a cache of weapons and had built up a stash of 7,000 rounds of ammunition. The court heard that he practiced with those weapons at several rifle clubs during the two years he lived in the country. And just two months before the attacks, he flew a drone over the Al Noor Mosque, capturing an aerial view of the building and its grounds and taking note of the entry and exit points. We also got an insight into his state of mind immediately following the massacre when he was arrested, detained and questioned. Terence said to police immediately after being arrested that he did this because he wanted to create fear among Muslims. He said that he wanted to instill fear into those he described as invaders. He also expressed regret for not taking more lives. His original plan was to attack a third mosque and burn down all of those that he attacked, and he expressed dismay and regret over not being able to complete his the mission that he had set himself. So given all of that, given the, le- the level of planning that was going in to this attack and, and the weapons that he was stockpiling and what we also know about his connections to the far right, how is it possible that he he was evading scrutiny? I think that's a really, really important question. And I think in addition to the details we know about what Tarrant was doing in the months and years leading up to this attack while he was in New Zealand, we also know how involved he was in far-right organisations and steeped in far-right ideology for years preceding that. You know, he donated thousands of dollars to far-right organisations across Europe. He had been in email communication with a particular neo-Nazi leader in Austria. He's used social media to praise a number of far-right figures in Australia and was active in a number of online discussion forums for some of Australia's most notorious uh, white nationalist groups and was even on the radar of, of one of Australia's most prominent white nationalists who had sought to recruit him to, to his organisation. This involvement that Taran had in in organisations that were openly Islamophobic, anti-immigrant and and white nationalists, as well as the fact that he had spent years building up this arsenal of weapons, I think really do raise important questions about how proactively security agencies up until Christchurch were taking the threat of far-right violent extremism. And last week I spoke to one former senior intelligence officer who worked for years in the Department of Defence, and he said that this attack was it was a disastrous failure on the part of security agencies. And I think that's the question here, because even though this sentencing last week sort of closes the chapter on the Christchurch attack itself, that attack was really just the beginning of a new phase of the far right who have been emboldened and in some ways radicalised and inspired by what Tarrant did. We'll be back in a moment. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. 
It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy. Yeah, yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Oz, let's talk about the impact that the Christchurch attack has had on the far right. What has happened in the 18 months since that attack? I think the most immediate impact that the attack had was that it led to copycat incidents right around the world, in, in the US and in Europe in particular. Just nine days after Christchurch, there was a firebomb attack at a mosque in, in Escondido in California. An arsonist who attacked a San Diego County mosque left behind a note about the deadly mosque attacks in New Zealand. Police are investigating the incident as a hate crime. The next month, there was a shooting at a synagogue in, in, in California. Chabad Poway near San Diego was packed when a 19-year-old white male shooter entered with an AR-style rifle and opened fire at 11.23 a.m. Later in August that year, there was a mass shooting in El Paso in Texas that killed 24 people. Captured on CCTV at the moment he walked into the mall, armed with an automatic rifle, intent on causing mass casualties. Both of those attacks were directly inspired by Christchurch. Just this year, early this year, uh, a far-right gunman killed 10 people in the German town of Hanau, targeting an area that was frequented by Muslim migrants. Nine of the victims were gunned down at two separate shisha bars. Officials also say the 43-year-old suspect had deep-rooted racist views and left a letter and a video admitting to the attack. So we have seen an escalation of quite severe violent massacres inspired by what happened in Christchurch. But it's also changed the way that, that far-right groups and, and far-right extremists more generally are organising, recruiting and planning. I spoke to Deborah Smith, who's a researcher of violent political extremism and the far-right at Victoria University. I think what we know about extreme far-right movements is that they're very pragmatic and very adaptable. So they clearly have responded to the attention that would have come on them from authorities by becoming much more security conscious and being much more on platforms that are are less moderated. She said one of the things that's happened since Christchurch is that Tarrant has become this sort of poster boy for the far-right movement people who have turned him into a sort of vile type of poster boy for the movement and something to aspire to. You know, I've seen in my reporting images of Tarrant that have been printed out and stuck onto the magazines of assault rifles of fired activists in America. They refer to him as a saint. Even just last week in Australia, one fired activist that Tarrant has previously been in communication with posted last week a statement on his social media channels, remember always that we are at war. There's a racial struggle that's being carried out and our enemies want to destroy our race. Those sorts of comments are 
very aligned to the kind of rhetoric that Tarrant himself espoused in his manifesto. And I guess this brings us to the current situation where, you know, where is the line between people who are espousing a violent ideology who have looked up to someone like Tarrant and when they might actually take action? Earlier this year, we saw the Director General of one of Australia's intelligence agencies, ASIO, flag the increased threat from far-right extremists. What more do we know about their focus on these groups? I spoke to ASIO just last week and they told me that while the threat of Islamic extremism remains their greatest concern, extreme right-wing groups represent a serious and increasing threat to security, particularly since the Christchurch attack. They also said that those groups are more organised, sophisticated and security conscious than ever before and they're becoming even more ideological and radicalised and they're attracting an even younger membership base. And the real concern here is that some of those people might not visibly appear to be extremists. There might be a disconnect between their public persona and what they participate with online. If we are in a situation, this seems to be what ASIO is saying, that there are increasing numbers of young Australians, some of them who they said are barely in their teens, being radicalised, then we do have a problem. So what avenues are available for security agencies and the federal government in terms of addressing this? One really specific area that I've been looking into is is the way that the Australian government operates its National Register of Terrorist Organisations. And that's one tool that the Australian government has used to disrupt Islamic extremism in the past. Putting a group on that register means that it's illegal for anyone to be a member of that group or even to associate with it in some circumstances. But There are 27 groups on the register, and 26 of them are Islamic terrorist networks. No far-right groups are listed, and and that approach taken by Australia is quite different to approaches in similar jurisdictions like the UK, where there are a number of far-right groups listed as banned terrorist organisations. Do we know any more about the list in Australia? How is it put together? So one of the challenges with the way that list is maintained is that it's pretty much solely at the discretion of the Home Affairs Department. When groups are added to that list, there's a parliamentary committee process that allows politicians to scrutinise whether or not those groups should be able to be prescribed and subjected to this extraordinary sort of government intervention. But what we don't have in Australia is an opportunity for people who are outside of the Home Affairs Department to put forward groups that should be on that list. And there have been growing calls, including from the Labor Party, that that list should start including far-right groups. But at the moment, there's no way to force that to happen. And look, there are, there are risks with this, you know, handing over more executive power to the government to ban organisations they don't support is always a risk when it comes to things like civil liberties. But that does send a very clear message to the community about the sorts of values that are considered okay and not okay in our society So, Oz, where does all of this leave us now in terms of the threat of terrorism from the far right and what might happen next? I think the the concern that a lot of the experts who monitor the far right have is that even if last week's sentencing of Brendan Tarrant closes the chapter of that story, it could actually just be the start of a new, more aggressive form of extremism from the far right. And that's obviously something that ASIO itself has told me it's concerned about. And as Deborah Smith put it to me, that this could just be the calm before the storm. Oz, 
thank you so much for your time today. Thanks heaps, Ruby. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, doctors in Victoria are worried that fears about COVID-19 are leading parents to avoid vaccinating their children. A survey of 2,000 parents conducted by the Royal Children's Hospital found that one in three parents were delaying their child seeking medical attention when they were unwell or injured, and one in five had delayed routine vaccination. There are concerns that outbreaks of whooping cough or measles could occur if too many children were not vaccinated when school returns. Doctors and the government are now trying to send a message that health facilities, like hospitals, are safe for families. And a childcare centre in Brisbane has been closed due to a positive COVID-19 case. The case is part of a cluster linked to a youth detention centre. Queensland Corrective Services have identified 170 prisoners most at risk from the cluster, and testing was being completed over the weekend. From today, gatherings in Brisbane and a number of regions in southeast Queensland will be limited to 10 people. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.